Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. This episode features special guest Simon Cartwright, director of Man O' Man. Joining me in the podcast is my stalwart companion, Mr. Steve Henderson. Steve, how are you doing, sir? I'm fine, Ben. I'm fine and dandy. And dandy? Both of them. Fine, dandy, and ready to chat about animation. Did you have a good weekend? I had a fantastic weekend, yes. Uh, we, we screened another edition of This Is Not A Cartoon. Quite a special one, actually. We did the children's edition. Uh, well, obviously not just for children. Obviously, they have, to, they have to bring adults along. So it was a more family-friendly edition of our uh, screenings. But uh, obviously, being, being for a general audience, there was no uh, willies or swearing. I remember when I was a kid, I uh, learned about sex from a cartoon that uh, it was a VHS that my parents rented and they just put it on. It's like, here you go. I guess they'd watched it and they figured it covered all the necessary bases. Yeah. It was quite good. I forget what it was called, but um, I remember there was a sequence in it. I don't know. You might have seen this. It was a sequence where a man and a woman are standing up in a tub and they have like a bubble bath over their bits and they have this, there's this rubber ducky. And the rubber ducky is like blowing the bubbles off their areas, and like, and this is what the breasts do. And let's go a little uh, further down south and see what's going on with it, you know. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, it all makes sense. That goes there. And with that, your twin obsessions of sex and animation were born. They've never gone away. It's very true. <laughs> sort of on that note, actually, I had a, a rather nice weekend myself. I swung by the ICA up in London where they were doing a uh, special screening of Signe Bauman's film. Our good friend Signe Bauman, uh, who made the film Rocks in My Pockets. That was a very nice thing to see because, you know, that's something that we um, sort of followed, I think, from quite early on, or certainly before it was uh, even sort of finished production. And we had her on the podcast a while ago. And I don't think I ever thought it wouldn't get made, but any kind of independent feature, you really are kind of like, the odds are stacked against you, I think. Mm. So the fact that not only did she end up making this film, that it got so much kind of critical acclaim and really quite high profile critical acclaim in press uh, was really, I thought, very encouraging. You know, A, that it was uh, an animated film that was outside of that kind of mainstream and B, that it was talking about quite important stuff and conveying, you know, things like her uh, mental illness in a very easy to relate way and also passes the Bechtel test which was one of the reasons why it was screening. This is an organization called the Bechtel Test Fest, which from what I gather is not an annual festival type thing. It's more scattered series of events with different kind of associations, a bit like the This Is Not A Cartoon screenings or say the Cine Me here in Bristol, which we did a, uh, a sex screening with uh, last year, which also featured Signe Bauman's work. Mm. She keeps popping up, our Signe. So the one sort of country where I kind of feel like Rocks in My Pockets could have gotten a bit more attention was England. They played it at the London International Animation Festival, which was great last year. And uh, so it was really nice that it got another big screen screening yesterday and to a really receptive crowd. And there was a whole like conversation afterwards about the role animation and creativity can play in dealing with mental illness and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a really nice sort of way to kind of round out the weekend for me to sort of see sort of good work being done in that respect, attention being paid to. I know I just like it when other people like what I like. Yeah, <laughs> basically. So the, 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 that's how the I festival operate. itself did it have? 
Were, were all the films, did they all pass the uh, Bechdel test? Well, I expect that's that's the case. I mean, this wasn't part of a bunch of other films. It was it was screened with some of Signy's other work mm. and other events uh, quite specific to other themes, I guess. They do sort of events with different organizations. This one was co-curated with uh, Little White Lies, the culture magazine. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, yes, I would assume that the, the Bechtel test itself, although I don't think Alison Bechtel is involved in this event, the it's become one of those sort of just terms within film mm-hmm. and I, I would assume literature as well and the criteria is it needs to have two female characters identifiable by name and at some point in the film they have to have at least one conversation that isn't about a bloke and would you be surprised how many films fail this seemingly basic test yeah then when you kind of think about it and you go through in your head like oh yeah but you know some animation films Pass. Frozen, interestingly, uh, passes the test. Uh, Persepolis, which isn't perhaps as much of a surprise. Rocks in My Pockets definitely does. It's a lot of conversations, you know, between different women in Signe's family. A big part of it is sort of her quest to kind of find the root cause of what she identifies as her issues. And there's a certain kind of element of secrecy coming from her family's end. Mm-hmm. So that was great. It was really nice to see again. The film is actually out now, I think, to buy through various uh, channels. But uh, I'll also give a little shout-out to the Bechtel Test Fest, because it seems like a nice event. It's bechteltestfest.com. And uh, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Brilliant. Back to this week. We're doing a bit of a shuffle, I guess, with the podcast. The guest for uh, for what was going to be this episode, their project has been put back a little ways. But it actually turns out to work out rather well because the Bristol Festival of Puppetry is happening. Uh, as of today, and the animation strand kicks off Thursday 27th with a talk from the Brothers Quay, I believe is the pronunciation, uh, and a sort of retrospective screening. Other guests will include Barry Purvis and uh, various others coming in to do workshops and special curated screenings. Animation is a big part of the festival this year. It's always been a part of the festival, but because it's a bigger festival this year, you know, there's more animation stuff on. If you go onto squiggly.com, that's our website, don't you know? We've got a little breakdown of some of the animation highlights that I think are worth checking out. Hmm. It, it does look great. Uh, I like the, the look of the Ivor Wood screen. It's nice to see him getting a bit more kind of uh, some more light shone on him, shall we say, after Tom Sanders uh, shared his work with us on the site. We did a, an, an Ivor Wood uh, retrospective in three parts. And obviously, it's always nice to hear Barry talking about his love for puppets. And, you know, some workshops and stuff. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh later on in the podcast. One of the films that's uh, being screened, actually one of the uh, the events that I think everyone who's sort of in the area should definitely check out, preceding each sort of major event, Chamber the Animation and Joseph Wallace have uh, put together these sort of mini screenings. They're like half an hour each of, I'm pretty sure it's all animation puppet films, like stop motion films. And then, you know, films that perhaps uh, are on the fence between animation and uh, live action puppetry. I can think of no better film, really, that brings the two together than Simon Cartwright's film, Man O' Man, mm. which was his NFTS graduation film. I just love the look of the characters. These are fairly expressionless puppets, uh, rod puppets, I guess, that make up the, uh, the cast of this film, with facial animation added on top, as best I can tell. And, you know, certain replacement heads, I'm sure, and things for, you know, when a character has to be particularly shocked and horrified. But the live action is all very, very expertly puppeteered. 
the premise of the story is nice and dark and creepy. The music is amazing. My favorite thing about the whole film is one sort of recurring shot of the main character and his cohort, uh, which we'll go into in a sec, but uh, they're running through the street. Yeah. And the way the street is put together is this like, you know, rolling cylindrical, like tumbler thing with the cityscape jutting out of it. Mm. I would say this is probably one of my favorite sort of student films, certainly. Of, uh, of late it's certainly unique you've seen nothing like it for such a long time or, or there's nothing really to compare it to i mean you can compare it technique wise obviously but you can't compare it story wise it's it's so bizarre it's you know it's a, it's a the story just leaves you what what's what what's <laughs> what's, what's just happened where where did danny devito come from what's <laughs> what's happening here why i think this kind of highlights the main sort of difference between you and, and me like you watch that film and it's it's this bewildering cavalcade of excess and I watch it and I'm like, oh yeah, I've had days like that. Thursday afternoon. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> he actually uh, directed The Astronomer's Son with uh, Jessica Cope. So no, no stranger to uh, puppet animation in a more sort of traditional sense. Him and Jessica, they've worked on a few things, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of great projects sort of come from like established sort of creative partnerships. I think the Mark and Emma who did O Willy, I think they've worked on a few things together since. Mm-hmm. A few like couples make films together. The, the Michelle and Yuri who did uh, Hollowland, I think that they work together quite a bit. It's interesting. I don't know if I'd I'd be able to sort of co-direct a film. Certainly, none of the ideas I've had so far. I think I'd be a bit too precious about like. Mm. Well, actually, I say that I'm I. There's a film I'm, I've written a script for, and I have no idea how to execute it visually. So I'm uh, I'm consulting a friend who, if it goes well, maybe we would do it together. But uh, you know, it's so hypothetical at the moment. Mm. But it's something that I, I would like to sort of cross off the list. I do enjoy hearing about people. They like when we have the sort of like two-hander interviews with like you know one person's perspective of working on the film next to the other you know it's always nice to say well, who who puts what in and and i say if, if you could create something if you can do the writing the concept and things but you need somebody else to do the, the the visual things and if those two come together perfectly this is the kind of you know it's like the dream relationship isn't it i think it's why the brothers mcleod are so prolific because their roles are so defined hmm. and that i think probably makes for quite sort of a clement relationship but there's no sort of ego clash in that sense otherwise if it was like two brothers perhaps sort of duking it out over like whose visual style is going to win out that could get ugly maybe mm. um well, like the brothers quay uh, brothers um quay whatever they're called yeah brothers <laughs> key quay quay one of them does the the spooky weird uh melted doll face stuff and the other one does the spooky weird melted doll face stuff it's a match made in heaven <laughs> enough of this blather on Let's uh, hear from the director himself. This is Simon Cartwright being interviewed by Steve at this year's Edinburgh Festival. Uh, my name's Simon Cartwright and I directed Man O' Man, which is a short uh, mixture of puppetry and animation. And the film is about a, a man who goes to a primal screen class in the hope of uh, connecting with his masculinity and tapping into it. And he desperately tries to kind of tap into this masculinity to the point where he actually gives birth to a a tiny little miniature primal version of himself kind of who does whatever he wants without thinking and uh, ultimately it kind of leads to the at least the road of ruin so yeah doesn't end 
So happily. You uh, talk to us a little bit more about the techniques that you used in the film. So um, we used really quite traditional rod puppetry that you might find in Bunraku or Muppet type stuff, but then we uh, animated on the faces to give them blinks, to move the eyes, to move the mouths, just because otherwise puppets can be very static and a bit dead looking. And so we, I sort of felt like if we were going to do it with puppetry, we had to add another element in order to bring them to life just a bit more. Um, and I think, you know, it's, a, it's something which I'm seeing going on more and more in commercials now is mixtures of uh, puppetry, stop motion, and then digital manipulation of those elements after the stuff you've got in camera, you know. Where did the story come from? Um, I'd come up with an idea about a man who lays an egg and then this miniature version of himself hatches out of it and it's kind of like a little um, voodoo doll, like whatever happened to the little version of himself would happen to the big man. And um, so I kind of like came out of that idea. But the main thing for me was I kind of wanted to try and tell a different story and I was really into, I play in, play like heavy music in bands and I love the, the way that loud and heavy music can make you feel uh, through sheer kind of volume and um, just the, the kind of, uh, just going along with it, you know. And so I wanted to try and make a film which did that you know, which was less about narrative, even though there is a narrative there, less about narrative and more about the feeling and the, the dynamics of volume and stuff. And so um, really the thing was kind of about trying to make something that was an experience, you know, which you just kind of swept up with. And the whole idea of masculinity, I'd just seen so many films which, which dealt with masculinity in a really negative way. And that's fine because it's it's you know it's justified. But I wanted to do something that, on the surface, was a kind of celebration of masculinity, but a celebration of the absurdity of the quest for masculinity and how it usually just leads to complete, you know, ruin <laughs> and chaos. The 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 film doesn't seem to go down traditional. It's not it's not a traditional sort of. Yeah. The, the, the choice for the ending is very kind of. Uh, what what, what do, I don't want to talk about the ending. Well, so where too much might it, it. Essentially, I wanted to do something where a bad thing happens at the end, but the audience is so swept up in the joyousness of what's happening, and it's a musical thing, in the absolute kind of like the. Almost like uh, worship, you know, like uh, when you're singing, you're going along with, you know, it's like you're at a football stadium and you're singing, you know. And so you actually don't really realize what the bad thing has happened, or you don't really realize that this horrible thing has happened until a little bit later. And I kind of wanted to create this sort of almost like. Um, a, 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 mix, a real mixture of uh, sadness and happiness, almost like I'm 
trying to force you to enjoy this even while something bad's going on because really it was it, it's to do with a crowd of, of people and really I think that's the thing that happens in sort of mob mentality you're thinking I shouldn't be doing this but I just feel so alive you know and it's only when the dust settles you know that it's like when did that when did I do that you know I don't remember doing that or that wasn't me so that was the sort of feeling I wanted to try and get across there and um, yeah not not easy to do but where, where were you before the NFTS and where are you going next um, before the NFTS I was I'd studied in Edinburgh uh, at the Edinburgh College of Art and then I made a short film as part of the formations uh animation scheme with Channel 4, Screen Yorkshire and the UK Film Council and that's called The Astronomer's Sun and um, after that I worked with, uh, I co-directed that with a, uh, a woman called Jess Cope and then we did a couple of music videos together after that and really I felt like I wanted to push my directing uh, more than being a, a writer and storyboard artist and animator. I wanted to break more into directing um, and so that's why I went to the NFTS and now uh, at the, I've just pretty much finished doing some storyboarding on a commercial in London and really I'm wanting to kind of try and go down that avenue of uh, working as a storyboard artist and then getting directing jobs when I can whilst developing all sorts of things, features and kids shows and um, short films and everything, so just kind of trying to do everything at the minute, I think. But what's, what's the reaction like to, uh, an, as an NFTS graduate? What? It can be mixed, it really can be mixed, and I understand that, because I never thought I would go back to study. It really kind of felt like a step backwards, but... Um, you know, I think that in, in some ways people respect uh, the craft of the work that's on the screen because it is a high standard. I just don't think you can argue with that. But then I think some people think, well, of course you made a film that looked great because you were at the, you kind of had everything at your disposal. And the reality of it's not actually like that, you know. Um, you know, I purposefully went there so that I didn't have to hire my own lights and hire my own camera and didn't have to do my own cinematography because I wanted to learn off somebody who only wants to do that, you know. Um, and, and so I think that's why everything, you know, films generally come out of there looking so great. But people, I understand it because I did it up until going there. When you have to do everything yourself, it can be a bit kind of annoying to see the credits list on an NFTS film, you know, it can seem like an eternity is going by. Maybe tell us about the sort of, um, the relationship between puppets and animation and, and what mm. you crafted in puppetry and how it relates to animation. I mean, this is something that I've kind of, I feel like a traitor sometimes, you know. Um, when I was learning to animate, it was through 2D and uh, I never really had the kind of um, hero worship of uh, Ray Harryhausen and guys like that. I was all about Disney, all about hardcore character animation. And, and then, 
you know, it was more out of necessity. I was doing a music video with Jess, and we did, we had to do a really long, for a really long track actually, it was about 11 minutes, and we only had a couple of weeks to shoot something, so we said we just can't animate on this. We'll do shadow puppetry, and the, the, the band liked that idea, so we did it. And after that, you kind of, and a lot of people on, on the internet were saying, oh, I love the animation. You know, a lot. you realise a lot of people just don't see the difference in performance. And you can get too locked into this really small world of animation where people are looking at every nuanced detail. And actually when you do something with puppetry, um, the vast majority of people don't notice the difference. And that led me down to kind of think more and more about what I do like in puppetry and I thought, I love Labyrinth, I love Jim Henson's work and I love um, the way that say, Michel Gondry uses elements of puppeteering in his films and um, I thought okay well maybe we can sort of mix these things together a bit and augment the puppetry with the animation because you just, unless you're working with world class puppeteers, you, the, the performance is going to suffer compared to animation and it was quite hard seeing you know my other people around me making such high-end stop-motion with these incredibly beautiful and nuanced performances and we really had to just work in broader strokes and um, and I think this the film suits that in a way because it's quite unabashed and aggressive but for something else with dialogue, with you know more nuanced acting, necessary, you wouldn't really be able to use the same methods, I think. So, so it's it's interesting, but I fully understand that there are limitations with it, and yet you can make something in uh, an afternoon if you want, rather than having to, you know, take weeks and weeks animating something. Nice one. Cheers, Simon. Cool. Thanks a lot. So that was Simon Cartwright talking to Steve in Edinburgh this year. Quite the head. F- that film is, and uh, rather lovely as well. Joining me now on the podcast is a dear friend, Mary Murphy, quite well-versed, I would say, in uh, in the art of puppetry and uh, stop-motion and all of that good stuff. Mary, how are you today? I'm very well, very happy to be here today. You and I, we, uh, we kind of go back a ways, I think, because I moved here about nine years ago uh, to study at uh, UWE, where you were a technical instructor there, and uh, still there, yes? Still there, very much running the sort of fabrication side of the stop motion department. So best job in the world, really, getting to be involved with stop motion and under camera films for master students, for BA students. Um, So, yeah, really, really enjoying that still Mm -hmm. and getting um, the odd bit of associate lecturing at the moment, which is really interesting because that's opening up the sort of the theoretical side of it and the, the more sort of broader debates around my subject area and the thing I'm passionate about, which is is fabrication and making and and performance. Um, so yeah, really, really good. Something also that I found with, because I'm not a stop motion animator, but something I've always sort of found with the way that you describe stop motion and the way that you teach stop motion is the daunting nature of all the materials and resources that you need. And you've always been very good at breaking things down very sort of methodically, I found, and kind of making it all seem a lot more feasible. Perhaps. That's very, thank you very much, very flattering, Ben. I, I, never, I never knew you felt like that. I think with the process of breaking down all of the daunting bits and pieces of stop motion, I think the, the best thing in my experience was to have actually gone through that very painful learning curve myself, 
just before I began working for UE because I had started there as a as an MA student with a lot of fabrication experience and a lot of puppet experience from my previous career, which was theatre and, and building and manipulating puppets for theatre and it, to a smaller extent television. Um, and to apply that to animation threw me massively into this this technical learning curve that didn't come naturally. I wasn't of the generation that had learned basic IT skills. I would have been just slightly before that. I was taught computers, and I'm doing air quotes here by a nun. Besides that, um, my first session with students is um, a very carefully choreographed talk to an entire cohort. So we have maybe 20 master's students, maybe five of whom may do stop motion. There's usually at least another six or seven who are toying with the idea, flirting with the notion of it. And I do a talk where I lay everything out. I talk about the the, the levels of passion, but also the level of courage that you need, because even for somebody very experienced, quite often the pipelines have uncertain outcomes because very few filmmakers are exceptionally experienced fabricators. And unless you're fortunate enough to have enough of a budget that you can hire an expert, you're usually figuring out materials, you're figuring out processes, you're trying to marry a visual aesthetic to a a concept. And and there's a lot of pitfalls. There's financial problems, the financial implications. Uh, Every time you make a mistake, it's costing you money. There's time, which for every animator is is the 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 enemy yeah. at times, um, and there's also spatial considerations because it's it's stop motion requires exclusive and consistent access to a dark environmentally controlled space, yeah. which for the very passionate isn't a problem because your entire flat or the back of your kitchen or your garage or your mum's attic or whatever can become that. But for a short period of time, it's hard to sustain that. So stop motion is a marathon. Um, What I find is that generally speaking, once students have have dallied and toyed with it, um, so everyone, say on the the BA course, will do a little exercise in level one, you can spot the stop motion people from a mile away. But for the very dedicated students, and I, I always say there's the makers, even if you're not... The, the most skilled maker, if you don't get a kick out of materials and if you don't get a kick out of happy accidents and, and, and trying things out, then stop motion really is not the area to go into. Certainly the sort of subject of, of stop motion and puppets and all of that is rather apropos considering this week is the uh, launch of, well, this year's edition of the Bristol Festival of Puppetry, which I'm not, do you know what actual sort of number like what edition this is i believe it's a biannual festival so it's every two years and i believe this is the fourth festival it's the third one that i've been involved with and it's an absolutely phenomenal coming together of every iteration of puppetry puppetry is a strange little beast It, it it exists on the fringes of so many other creative performance-based media. So you've got theatre, mime, film, animation, gaming, Mm. kind of collective community play, street theatre, dance. There are connections between physically making, building a character, building a kinetic object and allowing it to perform, giving it life. You will find that in film, you'll find it in CGI animation, you'll find it in again, street theatre, that kind of thing. So the the Puppet Festival has been uh, phenomenal uh, in its growth. It's it's, in its fourth year now, it's become very, very well known and well established. 
it's certainly the largest puppet festival in the UK. It's it's not the only one, but it does have a significant number of attendees that will travel quite a distance, but also international acts. The co-founders, uh, Rachel McNally and Chris Perry from Puppet Place, are absolutely dedicated in scouring the globe between festivals to source uh, unusual and sometimes controversial acts. So both of them are dedicated to pushing the boundaries of what is puppetry. So the the one message that I would put out about the festival is that it is not just for kids. And while there is an awful lot happening for, for small children and big children, there's a, there are a lot of performances, there are workshops that are aimed at, at creative play for for young people, young artists. There is a lot of what I would call adult content. And by that, I don't mean there's gratuitous sex and violence, although there is. It's also debates, opening up discussions about where does puppetry exist? And at what point are you almost creating a hybrid form? So if you look at something like Man O' Man, it doesn't slot easily into one or other. It slots easily into both, I would say, filmmaking and animation it's it's animated but it's also very traditionally a manipulated character and it brings something to this storytelling that is different again to stop motion with stop motion there's that uncanny valley there's the how is that moving you you're aware that you're looking at a real object Mm. but you're not you're less aware of the manipulator i think as soon as you see strings as soon as you see sticks it just carries the performance into something else again. And I think there's a lot of debate, there's a lot of discussion about whether that is its own distinct thing or whether it is a remediated or a hybrid form of of two existing processes. So yeah, really, really interesting. It is quite interesting, you know, especially now when it's so much um, easier, might not be the right word, but certainly there are more resources to combine the two. I think that the way, you know, it was done with Man O' Man was very effective. I think there's a certain quality about the movement in Man O' Man that really suits that sense of panic, that sense of like real intensity. You know, you could do something like that in stop motion, but because that sort of presence, that kind of unseen puppeteer presence is not nearly as much a part of the performance, like in a direct sense, you wouldn't be able to sort of quite get that same tone, I think. And I think that this really kind of suited Man O' Man. I totally agree. And I also think that there's a point where if let's consider Man O' Man, if you were considering making that as a traditional stop motion piece, the cleverness of how you convinced the audience that there was liquid pouring down the character's face is very interesting. It's very seductive for an audience to look at how they were tricked and how they were fooled. That sometimes can take from the the visceral quality of what's happening on the screen where something is live action, we we recognise that universe. We know there's gravity. We know the way liquid moves and we accept it. And I think what um, what Man of Man does exceptionally well is it, it it's limited palette in terms of materials. It, it, you know, the, if you look at the sets, they're beautifully designed, but they're not exploiting a range of different textures, a range of different materials. They're not trying to recreate a real or imagined universe. They are simply showing spaces and saying this is a cityscape this is an internal space this is a rooftop um beautifully shot and beautifully lit because it's the performance that is central and i do feel at times with stop motion that can be lost and it's very understand it's very understandable 
how it's lost because you enter into this dialogue with both your own skills, your own level of, of ability, your own courage, really. Your, you know, what risks do I take? And quite often a maker, a designer for stop motion can become seduced or obsessed into trying to just make a hyper real space or a, a somewhat stylized, but in the style of, you know, other stop motion productions or other genres. And you wind up with an environment, a world and a set of characters who are far too clever by half visually, um, beautiful to look at. But then the story struggles to, to be heard. And one of the, the attractions for me with with making is to marry the materials you're choosing to the narrative. So overall, what was your kind of impression of the film story-wise? Gosh, um, funny. It's thought-provoking. It's disturbing. It's one of those films that I will watch again. The first time you watch it, the story within the first three, four seconds, you associate with a character and, and with a very limited range of movement, because at the end of the day, he's a rod puppet. The puppeteer has managed to convey despair, hope, love, fear. It's done through the manipulation of the puppet, but also, interestingly, through, I think, a really exceptional soundtrack. I think the soundtrack on that film is is stunning. And again, the, the way that they've used surfaces, the way that the outdoor sets and the set pieces are so minimal in a way, they're just enough to tell you they're on a train, they're on a street... But yeah, the audio in it carries a lot of the story as well. So I think it, it blends together uh, the cleverness and the, the intelligence of the manipulator to a very strong story, to a very, very well executed production values. High, you know, it's, it's, it's beautifully made. So Man and Man will be playing at the Puppet Festival. It'll also be playing at Encounters in a few weeks as well. For info on where and when, uh, we'll give you the URLs for their respective websites at the end of the podcast. Uh, but definitely worth seeing on a big screen, as uh, as is often the case with a lot of the films that we uh, we talk about on here. I think certainly with a film like Man Oh Man, you kind of want it to be a sort of all-consuming, all-sensory experience. So elsewhere in the uh, Puppet Festival, you're involved at one point, you have a workshop on one day. Have you been involved in events with the Puppet Festival before? Yeah. In the last Puppet Festival, I worked with Jim Parkin from Ardman. And we did a joint workshop uh, together where we looked at two different fabrication approaches, finishing up with actually filming some basic puppets. So we always will provide two or three cameras and workstations. Um, I've also been actively involved in previous years with seeking out new talent. So graduates from colleges around the southwest, well, around the UK in general, but graduates from the southwest of England in particular, uh, to put forward into student screenings. And there's a student screening, I believe it's on the Sunday, but the information is on the Puppet Place website at the Brewery Theatre, which is a showcase of new talent. And that's been put together by uh, Joseph Wallace, who is involved for the first time this year in a lot of the animation-centric part of the Puppet Festival. So I would say that this year is the biggest we've had in terms of the animation side of it being incredibly well represented. There are screenings at the watershed throughout the four or five days of the festival at various different times and with different themes. So there are screenings for children, there are more adult screenings. And he's also been involved in putting together a really excellent uh, workshop series. 
So the the highlights of which I would say are you've got the Brothers Quay, who are iconic filmmakers who are doing an installation in the city centre that is just open to the public. It's a kind of peek through a window and see something. If I know their work, very dark, very provocative, very disturbing. But they're also doing a talk. uh, I believe Joe is actually going to be interviewing them in one of the cinemas in the watershed. And I've got my front row centre seat for that because that's a once in a lifetime opportunity. They're incredibly dark, innovative, magical, creepy, wonderful filmmakers. And another highlight would be uh, Dr. Barry Purvis, who is going to be doing a, a talk and a retrospective of his work. And again, I believe Joe is going to be chatting on stage with him for uh, an evening. So a two, three hour screening of his films and a chat. And he's also doing a day long workshop on directing performance for stop motion puppetry. And that's happening on the Sunday, the 30th. And that's in the watershed. There's a puppet making workshop run by Emma Powell, which is about just exploiting paper. And she is a phenomenal maker. There's my workshop, which is on the Monday. And it's stop motion on a shoestring. This seems to be my little niche because of my association with students and having to try and get students to engage with stop motion early on a degree. I'm I'm particularly skilled at finding funny little materials, cheap little things, bits and pieces that can actually be assembled to make a really robust fit for purpose little character. Um, most of the materials would be found on Amazon. So I've developed this workshop in the university and in places like the Puppet Festival over the years to kind of show absolute beginners the kitchen sink technology. So there's nothing that you'd need to, you wouldn't need to go and buy a bandsaw. You wouldn't need to have any particular extraction. It's using domestic art materials and things that you'd find around the house to make little characters and puppets. And hopefully we shall be shooting some animation. So I have three amazing graduates from the Bristol School of Animation Uh, Helena Houghton, I have Katie Hood and I have Lizzie Johnson. They're all ex-stop motion students and they've been doing work for Rusty Squid and Green Ginger, who are resident companies at Puppet Place. They're coming back for the day to assist me in showing the novice students on my course how to set up and shoot animation. So they're going to take over the animation side while I manage the fabrication side. And this formula works really, really well because it kind of it's a, a whistle stop tour in a day of what could actually take you the rest of your life to, to, to master. But it's it's showing people the entry-level way of doing it. Is there an age limit or range? It would be an adult workshop. There are equivalent workshops that are young people and children that other artists are running at the same time as mine. Simply because of the, the types of materials we're using, there's going to be a lot of glue gun, craft knives... Uh, but also the speed at which we're going to have to go. So you're jumping quite quickly. Yeah. And it's well, it's easy for a, a, an adult, an engaged adult to, to follow that and to be able to go back. It's less so for a child. Going over previous years, it tends to be sort of 18, 19 year old plus students up to 70 year old people yeah. who are just all interested in the process of making a puppet. So um, big age range, yeah. no previous experience necessary, but be prepared to work really hard Um and hopefully have a piece of animation to take away with you at the end of the day. That's the end result. The puppet in itself is a beautiful thing and a lovely thing to make. But unless you see it move, it's like 
it's like building a car with your hands and never turning the key in the engine. Mm. Um, it, it, you need to see how fit for purpose this little character is. So you're going to make decisions throughout the day and then you're going to see the consequences of those decisions on film. So the plan is that everybody will animate two, three seconds of movement, performance, it could be a walk, it could be a wave, it could be an interaction with another puppet. And generally, we then get those performances up on the Puppet Plays website um, at the end of the festival, along with all of the other filmed activities. Cool. And you also have a book, which is for younger audiences, if I remember right. And that's, is that called Getting Started in Animation? There's, it's Get Started in Animation, but the, the US version is called A Beginner's Guide to Animation. Right. So you'll find it under both. And yeah, that book's um, it's about eight years old now. But uh, it was written, my background in animation began um, in teaching. I was teaching in a college called Soundwell College, which is now City of Bristol College. And I had gotten the job because of my uh, ability, my experience in other processes. So I'm a trained ceramist. I can, I'm a trained metalwork um, artist. And I had gotten, I was teaching there. And I sort of very gradually over the course of a year started to investigate looking at stop motion because it was something I was interested in doing and had a very very long difficult learning curve trying to get my head around computers and cameras and lights and all of that sort of stuff started with a couple of students in an evening class and it was actually the students and their enthusiasm and their willingness to just jump in and try with little bits of blue tack and plasticine that got me very very excited about developing my own skill and experience so when I completed the master's course, that's the main reason I, I took on the master's course in UWE was to get a much more rounded idea mm. of filmmaking in general, media in general, but the, the production side of, of creating stories using puppets and characters. And when I completed my master's, I really wanted to write the book that I wish I'd had. Mm-hmm. So the book that was aimed really at animation in the classroom or at an adult, an aunt or a mom or a dad who wants to develop some kind of animation, little home studio for their children. The book itself is divided into separate chapters and each chapter is a little project. So it, it just is introductory and it gets to get you started in some basic 2D, some basic 3D paper cut out. The, the theme that links all the chapters is it's, it's, again, it's animation on a shoestring. It's the idea that you don't need the most amazing, fantastic high-tech equipment or amazing skills in digital manipulation and all of that sort of thing that can put people off. You need a lump of blue tack and, you know, nowadays your iPhone and a 199 app, Mm. you can jam the iPhone into a toilet roll. It fits beautifully. Squash it down, stick it in and off you go. I've only recently discovered that on some of the uh, Android apps, the volume control on your headphones can actually be a remote capture device. So you're not poking the the screen. Uh-huh. That doesn't sound very exciting or interesting to anyone out there who's not an animator, but hundreds of, anim- like lemmings across the nation, heads have popped up and gone, you can do what? Because part of the problem with, with he- having to touch the screen is that you're likely to move the camera around and you get a sort of translated, jerky, jittery quality to the animation that can be seen as low quality. So you can actually be animating your your character beautifully in the front, but the camera's jittering around. So this allows you to to just take the frames without having to do that. And again, that was just a little bit of research. People sharing the ways in which they've managed to engage with their subject or the ways in which they've managed to to set themselves up in a in a way that's tenable. So instead of having a, a four meter by three meter dedicated studio space, they've got 
12 inches on their, you know, student works desk and they throw a blanket over them to cut the light out and produce absolutely beautiful movement and beautiful action with that limited kit. Cool. Well, Mary, thank you very, very much for being in studio today. Thank you very much, Ben. And it's been an absolute privilege. And for the young animation upstarts in your life, you can find Mary Murphy's book, Get Started in Animation, a.k.a. Beginner's Guide to Animation, through uh, the usual outlets, Amazon, Waterstones, and so forth. And her puppet festival workshop, Stop Motion on a Shoestring, will take place August 31st from 10 a.m. at Bristol's Watershed. We also have a breakdown of some of the festival's animation highlights at squiggly.com, and puppetplace.org slash festival has the entire program for you to check out. Thanks also to Steve and our guest Simon Cartwright, who you can find at simon-cartwright.com, and he's at Twitter at manomanfilm. That's M-A-N-O-M-A-N film. Uh, you can catch Manoman as part of the Bristol Festival of Puppetry's New Visions Domestic Dreams free screening. It runs this Friday, August 28th, and the following Thursday, the 3rd of September, both at 7pm at the Tobacco Factory. Other upcoming screenings include Bristol's Encounters Festival, which will be part of the Late Lounge, which is Friday, September 18th at 10pm, again at the Watershed, and repeated the next night at 9. More information at encounters-festival.org.uk. If you want to get in touch about the podcast, you can email me at ben at squiggly.co.uk. I'm also on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. My site is ben-mitchell.co.uk and facebook.com slash benmitchellcreative. A couple of plugs. The concluding part of my graphic novel series, Throat, has also recently been released. You can find more information at throatbook.com. And also for the benefit of those of you who, according to our stat map, hail from Denmark, might want to swing by the Odense International Film Festival. I have a new film playing there over the next week or so in their main competition four and animation three screenings. Uh, use a nom de plume, but uh, see if you can spot it. And there's more info at filmfestival.dk. Steve Henderson can be found on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. And of course, you can find Squiggly on Twitter at Squiggly on Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. And for all the latest features, news, reviews, interviews, et al., visit Squiggly.com. Until the next episode of the Squiggly Podcast, happy animating! When you look even further down between the legs, you'll see that both the man and the woman have patches of furry hair. You'll have some too one day.